As a referring physician or as a patient, you expect your doctor to be well-versed in current practice guidelines on your condition. So would it surprise you that doctors who have been recently re-educated on those guidelines would have better outcomes of mortality and morbidity? You're listening to ReachMDXM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, your host, and with me today is Dr. Mitchell Levy from Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. Dr. Levy is a professor of medicine at Brown Medical School, and he's medical director of the Medical Intensive Care Unit and Director of Critical Care Services at Rhode Island Hospital in Providence. He's a fellow of the American College of Critical Care Medicine and the American College of Chest Physicians. He's done a ton of research in this area. Today we're discussing how the National Sepsis Education Program improved mortality rates, and on that study, Dr. Levy is a co-author. Thanks for taking the time in your busy schedule to be with us today, Dr. Levy. Pleasure to be here, Shira. Okay, so I see a few different issues here, but first of all, for our audience, why don't you tell them what the Surviving Sepsis Campaign is? Well, the Surviving Sepsis Campaign is a project that was created about five years ago by three founding societies, the Society of Critical Care Medicine in North America, the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine, and the International Sepsis Forum. And basically, it's an attempt to create a global standard of care and to improve outcomes in the management of patients with severe sepsis in intensive care units across the world. So this is a massive undertaking. How was this study performed, and what were the endpoints? Well, we originally received some funding from several different sources. It was partially industry-funded from the Eli Lilly Company and Baxter. Most of the money did come from the Eli Lilly Company and from the Coalition on Critical Care from the Society of Critical Care Medicine. And that funding was used by the three societies to do really two things. First, to create an expert panel and bring them together and publish the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines, which were originally published in 2004. And then second, to take those guidelines and distill them into what's called bundles as a way of changing clinical practice. How did you get this information to the hospitals that were in the study? What was the methods or materials of the study? Well, I think that's a great question, and one of the things that we know that's been shown and demonstrated in the literature many times is that guidelines in and of themselves, just publication of guidelines, really doesn't have a significant impact on clinical practice. So the best intentions of academics and clinicians to create a set of guidelines to help manage patients, whether it's DVT or PEs or whatever it might be, it really goes for naught because these guidelines are often not utilized. So what we did is we set out to partner with the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, which probably has the best track record of any organization in changing and improving clinical practice. And then we built a series of educational initiatives around these sepsis bundles, and there are two of them, one for the management initially of sepsis in the first six hours and another within 24 hours. And we built a website, and we started advertising through the website and through conferences about the surviving sepsis campaign in Europe, North America, China, and Latin America. And through word of mouth, through utilizing some of our industry partner friends, and just because these three professional societies are global societies, we began to recruit different hospitals from all over the world who expressed curiosity about taking part in the campaign. So what types of hospitals were included? Well, that's a very interesting question because unlike many research initiatives, 
which are almost exclusively done in large urban academic teaching hospitals. I'd say that the hospital that characterizes the Surviving Sepsis Campaign best is a small to middle-sized community non-teaching hospital. Now, that's not to say that all the hospitals in the campaign are non-teaching because we have my hospital at Rhode Island Hospital, the Merriam Hospital in Providence, and we have many teaching hospitals. But really, this is a grassroots effort. A lot of community-based physicians understood that there was enough new published trials for the management of sepsis that it was worth changing their clinical practice and in many ways were looking for some help in how to do that and so turned to the Surviving Sepsis Campaign. So for the primary care docs listening to us today, this in a way, if I'm correct, was set up to almost be a mirror of some many institutions in America, not just the large academic hospitals that may already have these guidelines, may have their own system for implementing them. But as you said, the community grassroots efforts that may not already have this established, this method of education and dissemination of this information. Yeah, that's exactly right. And in many ways, what our real goal was, and we being the three societies that partnered to create the campaign, is to create a generalizable model for taking guidelines and using them to change clinical practice. So we felt it was really important that community hospitals be a cornerstone of the effort so that we could say that anybody could do this anywhere. But were many of these facilities already functioning with, at least some of them, with top-notch ICUs anyhow, and they were aware of these guidelines and utilizing them? Well, I think that all the ICUs involved in the campaign are top-notch. I don't think we were trying to target ICUs that were doing it poorly. But the interesting thing is all the studies that have looked to see the degree of penetration to the bedside of some of the newer interventions, for instance, low tidal volume strategies for patients in ARDS with mechanical ventilation, that the penetration really on a consistent basis to the bedside is very low. So the utilization of current evidence-based strategies in sepsis really is not that common, unfortunately, in critical care. Now, why did you choose XUS and go there first? Well, it's actually not that way. We went global just from the beginning. From the beginning, yeah. So, in fact, you could say that it's just Spain did it so well. It was headed by Antonio Ortigas, who's from Barcelona, from the university there, and Ricard Ferrar. And we started the initiative in Spain, in the UK, in Germany, and the Netherlands, in Europe, in Brazil and Chile, in Latin America, and in multiple centers across the United States. And to our surprise, the Spanish group, which was 40 intensive care units across the country, were able to complete their initial trial the most rapidly, and we could write a manuscript and get it published in a very highly regarded peer-reviewed journal like JAMA. How was the teaching carried out? Were the physicians receptive? Obviously, Spain sounds like they were highly receptive, but in general, can you comment on how receptive they were, and how did this spread over into the nursing care? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, two things. One, the Spanish campaign basically took the educational materials from the Surviving Sepsis campaign and translated them into Spanish and added some of their own based on the particularities of some of the regional hospitals. So they had this program called Edu Sepsis, E-D-U Sepsis. And it really was a remarkably thorough educational initiative that was done in each hospital. So we had a couple of large meetings where we introduced it and then people from each hospital took the materials back to their hospital and then basically instructed the physicians and nurses. 
So the educational materials are available in English and in Spanish now. The other question you asked, which is important, is how are the nurses involved? And there's no question in my mind that the Surviving Sepsis Campaign and sepsis care in general can't improve without collaboration between physicians and nurses. So all the sites involved in the campaign, we always encourage a physician and nurse team to come to the meetings and the planning and the launch programs so that we can get a collaborative approach from the beginning with the campaign. So what are the broader implications of this study? Is this really saying that even excellent physicians working in a highly specialized area like an ICU and a a diagnosis like sepsis, which is fairly common, do they really need to be reminded and taught um, what the standard of care? Well, the answer to that is yes, and the proof of it is all over the place. But one trial that was published by Frank Brunkhorst from Germany was with 450 intensive care unit clinicians across Germany, and they basically asked, how often do you do the following? And they asked a whole host of very common practices. And even with glucose control, the respondents answered 65% of the time they said they frequently or always do it. And then the Brokhorst group actually measured it and found out it was only being done 20% of the time. So there's a real difference between the perception of what we think we're doing at Uh the bedside and what we're actually doing. So it's not that people have the bad intentions. It's just that what we think we order and what we think we're doing actually winds up not being the case. And so it's a matter of being more rigorous in our application and measuring and reporting the frequency with which we comply with process measures and what the outcome results are. The glucose is kind of interesting. Can you mention a couple of other parameters at surface where physicians thought they were right on the ball there and really they were dropping it? The most striking one is protective lung strategy. So in that same study, 92% of the intensivists answered that they frequently or always apply lung protective strategies to their patients with ARDS or sepsis who are mechanically ventilated. And when the audit happened, only 4% of patients were actually receiving lung protective strategies. Now, by lung protective strategies, you mean low volume, or what else do you mean for people listening? That's correct, low tidal volume strategies. And in fact, in the German study, they didn't even specify that it had to be six cc's per kilogram. They just said, are you using lung protective strategies in a way almost to give docs the leeway of being right? And still, only 4% of the time was there any even semblance of a low tidal volume being applied during the audit period. But they thought they were. But 92% of them (laughs) thought they were frequently or always doing it. The other thing we've seen is steroids for septic shock, the big split for, at that time, 80% of the folks thought they were doing it and only 20% were doing it. Rapid fluid resuscitation, this is the Spanish study now, 83% said they frequently or always give at least a liter and a half of crystalloid or the colloid equivalent as soon as patients come to the emergency department in severe sepsis or septic shock, and it was only being done 40% of the time. So that's a very basic one. How quickly do you get fluids on board? And it's just as we say, we think we're doing it. Perhaps we see the patient in the ICU and it looks like the patient's got, let's say, three liters of fluid, but it may well be that they don't get them right away. They don't get that fluid resuscitation that aggressively. So I would ask you then, what is the take-home message for the general practitioner from this study? The take-home message is we are under-managing or under-treating patients with sepsis. There are a number of new interventions that clearly improve outcomes for patients with sepsis, and unless we look 
and measure how frequently we're compliant with those new interventions, we really have no idea whether or not we're doing it, which to me is what the Surviving Sepsis Campaign has proven. Dr. Levy, thank you for being my guest today. We've been discussing how a national sepsis education program improves mortality at the bedside. And I'm Dr. Shira Johnson. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. To comment or listen to our full library of podcasts, visit us at ReachMD.com. Register with the promo code RADIO and receive six months free streaming for your home or office. Thank you again for listening.